Welcome to Biomechanics on Our Minds. My name is Melissa Boswell. And I'm Hannah O'Day, and we're PhD students at Stanford University. This podcast is brought to you by the International Society of Biomechanics. It's, it's time, time for Boom. Welcome to Boom. We have Biomechanics on Our Minds. Boom. 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 Welcome to episode 48 of Boom, almost to 50. Very exciting. (laughs) I'm Melissa. And I'm Hannah. And we are so happy to have you here in this episode. We talked to Dr. Bob Goldberg, who is the Vice President and Executive Director of the Knight Campus for Accelerating Scientific Impact at the University of Oregon. It was an amazing interview. He is so inspiring. He talked to us about becoming an academic entrepreneur, embracing interdisciplinarity, and creating diverse and inclusive communities. And he shared his work in musculoskeletal tissue generation and what he's most excited for um, in in biomechanics. And I think it it was just really inspiring. So we're so excited to share it with you. And before we get started, we wanted to ask that if you like Boom, make sure to, to subscribe and rate it and share it with someone who you think would enjoy it as well. Your reviews just like make our day. So please just leave us a little note, um, even if it's just telling us what you had for breakfast. Um, it will <laughs> probably just make us cry. <laughs> um, we just so appreciate you. And, and yeah, thanks for being here. Before we get started, Hannah's going to share with us a bit of boom. Bit of boom. Bit of boom. Bit of boom. All right. So our bit of boom today is about sutures. Melissa, do you know what a suture is? Do I know what a suture is? Yeah, I just had two orthopedic surgeries in a year. (laughs) (laughs) I'm tired of knowing what a suture is. (laughs) Well, Melissa knows, but in case there's anyone out there that doesn't know, it's basically the medical version of sewing used for repairing soft tissue injuries, such as ligament and tendon tears, the orthopedic surgeries that (laughs) Melissa's been in. And you can imagine, I bet Melissa can share also this part that you can have some stress here at the the suture point that could disrupt the healing process, make it slower to heal, harder to heal. Um, Mm. For example, if you've just sewn up a rotator cuff tear, knock on wood, that's not one of the surgeries Melissa had, and you start moving your arm around, there's going to be some unhappiness at that suture point. So researchers of a recent IEEE paper, one of the co-authors is Bob Goldberg, who is the interviewee for today. So we're really excited to share this, this work. In the paper, they develop a tiny sensor to measure the stress at where the suture is. And what's cool is that this sensor is really small. Think like a one centimeter capsule, doesn't require a battery, and its wireless nature reduces the risk of infection compared to other sensors that you might want to put here or that have traditionally been Mm. uh, manufactured. So what's cool is that now we can make really reliable measurements at the suture that don't disrupt the healing process, and they can help us better understand, you know, how we heal. And this is a big theme of our interview with Bob, having quantitative tools and biomarkers to better understand these biological processes and also have an impact on the human and how they heal. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. I think it will be exciting when we could use that information to make sure we're designing rehabilitation programs correctly or or notice if there is some issue or something like that. I think that's all 
really exciting. And I feel like having a sensor that's also not intrusive, you know, not something mm-hmm. as big as like a joint implant, but something as simple as like fitting in with just a suture is really, really cool. Yes. And just to properly reference the source, the first author was Solil Karapat, and it was an IEEE. It's called a wireless battery-free embedded sensor for monitoring tension on a suture anchor. So check it out if you've got time. And that is our bit of boom for the day. Okay, today we are talking with Dr. Bob Goldberg. Bob is the Vice President and Executive Director of the Knight Campus for Accelerating Scientific Impact at the University of Oregon, as well as the Principal Investigator of the Goldberg Lab. Thank you so much for being here with us today, Bob. That's a great pleasure. Yeah, it's really fun to be talking with you, and we love asking this question to start out. When did you first know you wanted to be a biomechanist? You know, I'm not sure when I first knew what a biomechanist was, but probably not (laughs) long after I figured that out um, and and that I could, you know, make a career out of doing it. I was a Mecky undergrad at Michigan. So uh, this was, I hate to admit it, but it was like the 1980s. So there wasn't a a bioengineering undergrad program back then. And I was trying to figure out whether to go to med school or go to grad school. So I jumped into an orthopedic biomechanics lab that was run by Steve Goldstein. And Mm. so Steve had a really big lab in orthopedics at Michigan. And it was a really cool time to join that lab because they were doing some super pioneering work on Mm. developing and using micro CT to define microstructure function relationships in bone. So we had like one of of the first micro CT systems in the world that was actually developed at Ford Motor Company and then was donated to Michigan. And so we got to work on some of the software and it was in like this lead lined room and, you know, completely custom built. And that work really enabled us to start to look at skeletal fragility and also my work, which was studying mechanical adaptation during bone healing. So that that's really, I think, where I got really excited about, you know, being a biomechanist. And I also I mean, one of my early lessons was at Michigan was finding and valuing learning from different mentors. And Scott mm. Hollister was there. I don't know if you know Scott Hollister. He was actually most recently become pretty well known for developing 3D printed implants that have saved a lot of babies' lives uh, with tracheal splints. But back then he was one of the early people who was doing image-based finite element modeling. And so I began working with him and we were using micro CT to create, you know, really fast, large, finite element models from voxels to analyze complex microstructures. And we actually got to start a company together. So as a graduate student, I got to start a company with Scott that was called VoxelCon. VoxelCon is Voxel (laughs) Convergence. And that was super pivotal for me because it was my first exposure to translating academic work into something that could have kind of a broader Mm -hmm. impact in a different way. And really solidified for me wanting to be a professor and, you know, both do discovery research, but also be an academic entrepreneur. That's so interesting. I think your excitement for starting the company, but then from that wanting to become a professor, I think sometimes we think of those as two different paths, maybe. So it's cool to hear your perspective on that and how that actually solidified that you wanted to become a professor. Yeah, I agree. I I guess I was the same way. I didn't realize you could do both. And I think, you know, for academic entrepreneurs, they're kind of characterized in a couple of ways. One is they probably (laughs) don't have quite the risk tolerance that a true entrepreneur does going out and starting a company. (laughs) 
but also I think it's somebody who, you know, really also enjoys fundamental discovery-based research. And that was the thing that was mm -hmm. cool to me is I could think about being able to do both, you know, to work mm -hmm. with students, to do that sort of, you know, NIH-funded research. And then, you know, when it made sense to go ahead and translate it out into a company. I think that key of like knowing when it makes sense is also like both, right? Like you sort of build that wisdom maybe as you go along, but I'm interested to see, yeah, how have you developed that? Just because I think that's the, that's the part I always struggle with. Like, how do you know when to, <laughs> when to take it further? Yeah, I think you're right, Hannah. I think it is something you learn as you go along and you kind of start to recognize when the stars align. Mm -hmm. So at this point, I guess I've started maybe six companies and, wow. you know, I've, had the whole experience. I mean, I've had ones like VoxelCon did okay. I mean, we did we did pretty well, and we ended up selling it to a company in Japan. But we missed a lot of great business opportunities because we really didn't know what we were doing. Honestly, we had <laughs> some good good technology and good software, but we really didn't know from the business side. So that was a learning experience, right? And the next time you do it a little better. I've also had companies that failed completely miserably because they were had too long of an expensive regulatory pathway. And so I learned from that. Mm. And, and then I've also, you know, had some that are, you know, now creating medical devices that are in thousands of patients. So, it's, you know, I think it's wow. the whole gamut wow. and you, you learn as you go along. So my advice would be just to get the experience, even, even if it doesn't end up being successful the first time. <laughs> That's really good advice, I think. And I love that term academic entrepreneur. I like, wrote that down. I was like, that sounds, I haven't heard that before, but I feel like that sounds really exciting and and I'm curious, in terms of personal characteristics, are there traits that you found that have really supported you in being an academic entrepreneur or, or characteristics that you've started to cultivate or realized have benefited you the most in that sort of path? You know, I think for me, it probably started back at Michigan when I was in Steve Goldstein's lab. We always had industry partnerships. And <laughs> so I got an opportunity to see both the pros and cons of being an industry, right? So you know, the, the mm -hmm. pace of things moving in industry and the fact that if it's not an industry and not a product, then it's unlikely to have the same impact on patients and things like that. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I could see that if I went that route fully, that I might eventually not like the fact that I couldn't be innovative in terms of what I worked on mm -hmm. in the lab or I might not be as excited about developing products and things like that all the time. So that balance of being able to do both, I think, is what really excited me. And is it easy to do that in your academic career, I guess, going into becoming a professor? Is that something that you were sort of let the university know that that's what you are interested in doing? And, and are the universities really supportive of, of that sort of combining entrepreneurship with, with being a professor? Yeah, that's especially a great just question. starting out. <laughs> right, right. Well, definitely when I started as an assistant professor, it was kind of taboo to start a company as a as an assistant professor. Mm -hmm. you, you were encouraged to kind of focus on, you know, getting tenure and, and getting your lab off the ground. And that's, you know, it's not bad advice, honestly. But I think more and more now people are starting companies earlier. And one of the things that I'm trying to do in the Knight Campus and really is the mission of the Knight Campus is to break down those barriers and make it easier to do startup mm. companies, if that makes sense. Mm. And in fact, we've even taken it a step further in the tenure criteria for our faculty. We've integrated innovation and entrepreneurship as one of the metrics that they can be positively reviewed on. And so that's actually something that's not very typical and 
even even if it's not actively discouraged, a lot of times universities won't actually give credit for doing it. And so that's something we're mm-hmm. trying to fix. Yeah, it's really nice to see that become an actual component or value of the university and, and see push that forward. And I feel like I could keep talking <laughs> to you about this <laughs> um, because I find it so fascinating. Maybe we could talk a little bit about your research to yeah, also understand some of the, the research underlying some of these innovations. And uh, we've seen that your research focuses on musculoskeletal tissue generation using technologies like advanced biofabrication and, and selective laser melting to engineer new medical devices. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what this means. You've, you've talked about it briefly, some of the projects that you've worked on and, and have been translated, um, but I would be grateful to know some of the projects that are currently going on in your lab. Sure. Yeah. I mean, some of the current focuses are on regenerative rehabilitation. And so I, I really like this area mm-hmm. because as I came out from my PhD and my postdoc, I moved into the field of tissue engineering, which was kind of just getting off the ground. But I always had that background in biomechanics and you know mechanical adaptation. And so regenerative rehabilitation is really combining those two. And it's looking mm-hmm. at you know, how do our stem cell therapies and our, our, our protein delivery systems and things like that how do those interact with what's often separated in terms of patient care, the rehabilitation side of things in order to optimize the outcomes? And so we've done some work, for example, looking at vascularization during bone healing and how does the magnitude and the timing of the rehabilitation affect those early vascularization events? And it's, it's dramatic. It's very potent. And so you can, if you get it wrong, you can actually completely disrupt the healing process and if you get it right, you can actually accelerate it beyond what it could be. And so it's, I think it's an underappreciated interaction between those two. So that's definitely one main area. We, we're doing that in bone. We're doing it in muscle. We're doing it in joints with osteoarthritis. And then another big area is looking at the interface between trauma and immunoengineering. And so that was based on some work funded by the DOD. Just long story short, we discovered that much like in human patients, some of our treatments, which would work in a young, acutely injured, healthy preclinical model, if we started adding complexities that were similar to what you saw in human patients, we started to see responders and non-responders. And so we dug deeper into that and did a lot of flow cytometry and proteomics and multivariate modeling and have developed some serum-based biomarkers of trauma outcomes that we can Mm -hmm. measure very early on. So we can take a blood sample at a week and measure some immune cells in particular um, that demonstrate a dysregulated immune response to trauma and treatment Mm -hmm. that we can predict how they're going to end up. And so that's valuable to orthopedic surgeons just as a biomarker. But we also have NIH funding now to develop an immunomodulation strategy, you know, similar to what's being done in the cancer field to try and turn trauma non-responders into responders. Wow. That is incredible. I feel like these are great examples of how science can really aid these processes that have traditionally been very clinical. And, you know, you depend on a lot of patient clinician interaction to kind of do what these biomarkers can do for you, like in telling you where you are at in different stages of healing, injury, rehab, you know. And it is just so cool to see actual tangible examples of being able to make these measurements, have this knowledge of what those measurements mean, and then how to react to it. And I can totally see, yeah, that whole pipeline 
Yeah, I think it's the we're finally beginning to realize all the benefits of personalized medicine that mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. kind of hyped you know a decade ago, and it's really right. taken a lot of advancements in you know what we can measure, and then you've got all this data right, and so the machine machine learning and multivariate modeling all that's mm-hmm. become so important and has been a real learning process for me, you know, to learn those aspects and integrate them into our research. But your question was really about our medical device work. And and that's always been an interest also in the lab is studying devices and how they functionally integrate mm-hmm. and perform in vivo. But it really came into focus for me about 10 years ago because of a, a personal motivation within my family. My daughter at the age of 14, was diagnosed with stage four spondyloliothesis. I don't know if you know what that is, but it's kind of like scoliosis, but it's anterior, posterior type deformity where in her case, in her lower back, one of her vertebra was about 80% slipped off of the other. And it was a total shock. She was a nationally ranked tennis player at the time, had had really no back problems at all. And by the time we discovered it, the doctor said, you know, there was no choice, but she needed a a two-level spine fusion. And so she went through that. She was incredibly brave. It's a very, you know, difficult, painful recovery. And she Mm. went through the rehab. And then about nine months after surgery, she turned over in bed and she felt the titanium rods in her back snap. Oh. They broke. Just, Just turning in bed. Oh, my gosh. And what had happened was the fusion device had failed, and she mm. needed to under, undergo a second seven-hour <sighs> surgery. So, you know, that was also a surprise because you expect young people to heal wow. well. And, and I did a little bit of digging and, and, you know, was really surprised to see how often spine fusions actually fail. And so that kind of led to some work with a collaborator at Georgia Tech named Professor Ken Gall. And he and I recruited a couple of really outstanding PhD students, and we set out to design a better spine fusion device. What we ended up designing was uh, a surface porous peak device. So peak is a polyether ether ketone. It's a very common material used because the doctors can image it and, and verify fusion, but it doesn't integrate as well as say titanium into the body. And so we created basically peak spine fusion cages, but we made a process where we could make the surface of it be porous in about 500 micron mm-hmm. layer. And that ended up like tripling the integration strength of the implant. Wow. wow. So once we saw those good results, we started a company called Vertera, and we cleared a couple <laughs> of those devices through the FDA. And Vertera was actually acquired by Nuvasiv in 2017. And now those implants are benefiting you know, thousands of, of spine patients. So wow. that, was, that was a good, ex- good experience in terms of the, you know, that was one of the examples of entrepreneurship where it actually worked quite well. Wow. And, then, and then now we currently have a, you know, we took that same team, we kept the band together and, uh, and we've created a new company called Restore3D, which is um, doing 3D printed implants. And we have, you know, we can make architectures that you can only mm-hmm. make using 3D uh, printing. So like complex gyroid shaped porous architectures that have really great mechanical and biological advantages. Um, and then, of course, you can do this as a customization. So we work with doctors and uh, design an implant that matches the anatomy of the patient. So you can you can do that. and. It turns out, actually, it's quite economical to make implants using 3D printing. So 
I think really that's the future of medical device innovation and manufacturing. Mm -hmm. I'm curious with your, first of all, it's, it's, I mean, it's amazing sometimes how the things that going on in our life, like we could never predict, you know, Mm -hmm. what we might venture into. And I can't imagine there being a better motivation than, you know, with your daughter going through something like that um, to design a better device. And when you are then thinking to change this design and and you're choosing um, somehow you came upon changing the, the surface of it to make it porous and, and you saw these massive improvements. And I'm curious how that sort of comes into play, like how you think up these design features that can improve the device. Is it looking into other fields of what's going on? Is it, yeah, like where, where do those sort of like inspirations come from and, and, and how you get those types of ideas? Yeah, I mean, a lot of these are collaborative things, right? So Ken Gall and I basically had decided we liked working together. We had complementary strengths. He was an expert in material science. I was an expert in biomechanics and preclinical model testing. And then we had identified this as a need in the market. So the first thing you do, of Mm -hmm. course, is you look at what is out there. Why is it not currently working? So we, you know, we looked at it and we realized the surgeons really liked this peak material. It had really good mechanical properties. It was not as stiff as titanium. It just didn't integrate. And so that really identified the fundamental problem that we had to fix. Other people in the field were trying to fix that by sort of spray coating on titanium and things like that, but then that delaminates. And so, you know, I, you know, I have to give a lot of credit to Ken and also the PhD students that we co-advised who then thought about from a material science perspective, how can we create a durable porous interface that's not going to delaminate? And it mm. turned out to be something actually relatively simple. We took salt particles and used the properties of the polymer with heat and wow. pressure to extrude the salt particles mm. into the material and then just use water to you know, take out the salt particles. Mm. And what you're left with is a, is a really strong, durable, uh, porous interface. Wow. That is so cool. It's so cool to see the interplay of these different disciplines. And also, it's incredible for you, yeah, as a professor to have like, so much experience and wisdom in all these areas from entrepreneurship to, you know, material science. And it's cool to see how you've been able to integrate it to really have impact. And so, (laughs) well, that's important, too. (laughs) You know, just to finish the story about my daughter, uh, whose name is Sophia, she she came back uh, from her second surgery and she won two state championships in high school tennis. And she's currently a Ph.D. student at UCSF studying cancer immunology. So she had she had a good ending to her story, but it was a rough couple of years for her, for sure. Wow. That's amazing. Her story has impacted so many, you know both on her own and through you, right? I'm sh- and I'm sure that did, did this, did her story inspire her love for science or anything like that or fuel her own research desires? I, you know, that's a good question. I, I don't know. I don't know. She's, uh, you know, she, she always told me, she said, I, I love science, dad, but I'm not going to be an engineer. And I said, that's fine. <laughs> she, she, she's, she's a biochemist <laughs> and, and, and much smarter than her dad. <laughs> smart in different ways is like what I what I like to say <laughs> um, well I just wanted to touch a little bit on this theme of integrating so many disciplines because we were just looking at your lab page and you have a lab full of different members 
with lots of different educational backgrounds. And you've got people with uh, molecular biology degrees to a postdoc with a doctor of dental surgery (laughs) Um, and lots of, you know, mechanical and bioengineering in between. So we're just wondering how does leading, you know, what are the effective practices for leading such an interdisciplinary team with so many diverse backgrounds? And how has this fueled your own research and the way that you've had impact? Yeah, I mean, I guess the first part is just embracing interdisciplinarity. You know, there have been some really cool studies done on the effectiveness of educational programs and research programs and even entrepreneurship. And interdisciplinarity always comes up as a key element of of the success of those groups. And so... (laughs) I've always embraced it. I had to kind of learn things in a sequential way as I was going through because we didn't really have integrated programs. So I was an engineer first, and then I did a postdoc in molecular biology and learned some business along the way. So we're trying to integrate some of those things a little more. But as a result of that, yeah, my lab's very interdisciplinary. And I, you know, I just look for opportunities. My postdoc that just joined us with the DDS, you know, she, it was an opportunity. I was talking to a colleague and he says, I have a fantastic PhD student who's finishing and she'd be potentially interested in a postdoc. And she's been fantastic. So she, wow. she's taking us in some new directions with some uh, projects that we would never have taken on above mm. the head. I've worked mostly below the head in my career. <laughs> it's, it's still bone. There's still bone and muscle and, you know, cartilaginous tissues. So uh, we can, I think we can make an impact there too. That's amazing. I guess above the head because dental is <laughs> in <Right>. your mouth. <laughs> right, right. right. But yeah, I mean, yeah, I've been really lucky to work with amazingly talented students mm-hmm. and, and they have been diverse in lots of different ways. And one of the things that really motivates me and continues to motivate me is mm-hmm. to see them develop and all their accomplishments now in, in uh, companies mm-hmm. and government. And a dozen mm-hmm. or so of them are now professors themselves. And some of them have graduated students. So I guess that makes wow. me an academic grandpa. Um, <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not a real grandpa yet. <laughs> so, but it's, wow. I think the biggest challenge maybe with that diversity is just uh, understanding that every person's different and, mm-hmm. and how to sort of <laughs> unlock every individual person's potential. Mm-hmm. It's one of the things I had to learn as a young professor is, you know, not to expect everybody to think the same way you do. And that's, you know, you you have to work with them on an individual basis. Which I can imagine happens regardless of if they're studying the same topic or not. (laughs) When you say you had to learn that as a young professor, are are there things that have aided in that? And any main takeaways or advice that you would give to a young professor regarding that? I think it's just setting priorities that you need to spend individual time with your faculty, you know, I'm not trying to be critical, but I, I've never wanted to run a lab with, you know, 20 postdocs and 30 students because I, I wouldn't be able to spend time with them individually. So my mm. lab's always maxed out at about 15 people, you know, in total. Mm. Um, the one bit of advice I do give is that early on when you're developing your lab, you really have to spend extra time because you don't have this hierarchy of experience in your lab. So you guys probably experience this, right? If you're in a fully developed lab, you've got postdocs and senior grad students who provide mentorship to the younger graduate students. And so once you have that hierarchy, it's, um, I think there, there can be a really effective mentorship system in place, but for young faculty, 
they don't have that yet. So they need to really spend mm-hmm. time, you know, individually with, with the students. It's cool to see the theme of personalization come through and like each level <laughs> of work that you do. <laughs> I had to do it as a baseball coach too. Oh, wow. There you go. Back in uh, kid pitch, you had to learn how to, or, or coach <laughs> pitch, you had to learn how to throw the pitch into the individual hitter's swing. So, <laughs> <laughs> whoa. I wonder if there's like a parallel to, um, you know, a fun like research like parallel. <laughs> um, <laughs> I see lots of parallels between yeah. athletics and, and academics mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you, borrowed any good any coaching strategies over into your mentoring practices? oh yeah for sure i mean we just talked about one but yeah the importance True. of building Other. a great team yeah. yeah for sure yeah i when i think about um my team and i for some reason i think about softball a lot and all of the cheers that we had and like sometimes i wish <laughs> that we had the same way like chants and cheers i feel like they're always really energizing i tried to make a lab cheer actually for our lab during covid but it didn't it didn't quite stick but um still <laughs> haven't given up yet <laughs> I, I, I like it though you know you're innovating so yeah yeah thank you scott didn't exactly explain it that way but i like that <laughs> reframe yeah <laughs> Well, it's cool how we've seen you like build out your lab on individual, well, build yourself as a person, build your lab on an individual level. And now and we talked a little bit about this at the beginning of the interview, but created a new department at the University of Oregon. So can you tell us a little bit more about that and what were the big challenges there and how were you intentional about, you said you really want to be intentional about integrating entrepreneurship with that and having that built into the structure. So can you just tell us a little bit more about that? And then we'll go one level up in your involvement in, you know, alliances outside the university. Uh, sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was a lot of the motivation for coming to the University of Oregon. I, you know, I was mm-hmm. at Georgia Tech for, I think, 22 years and my son mm-hmm. was playing baseball there at the time. So I wasn't really looking to to leave, but you don't hear about many opportunities to build an entire new campus with the incredible resources that Phil and Penny have provided for the night campus. And then I think what clinched it was I kept saying, well, you don't want me. I'm an engineer. And then kept saying, <laughs> well, you know, you're exactly what we want because we want engineering. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is an opportunity to start mm-hmm. a bioengineering mm-hmm. program, mm-hmm. which all of my mentors and the, you know, the people I really looked up to in the field, that's what they did back in the 70s. Yeah. They were the at the early stages of people coming from mechanical engineering and aerospace engineering to start the bioengineering field. And this was an opportunity to do that. So that, that's a lot of the reason I really was excited to take on this role and, and launch uh, an engineering program at the University of Oregon. So yeah, it's, uh, it's growing very fast. The PhD program, we're recruiting now our third cohort of PhDs. And we uh-huh. have, I think, over over 150 applicants this year, which for such a young wow. program is is really amazing. I mean, a credit to our staff and our faculty that are out there <laughs> recruiting. Um, <laughs> and we've got a, a minor that we launched this year. So the PhD program, I think, currently has 20 students in it. We have a minor that we're offering at the undergraduate level before oh, wow. we offer a full undergraduate degree program. And then we actually have a large master's program that's a master's internship mm. program with over 150 students in that. And so that's a, yeah, it's a really, 
I, I love that program. It's it's completely focused on industry needs. So there's tracks based on what industry needs. The students mm -hmm. come in, they take wow. six months of courses, they do a nine month internship, and then 98% of them have jobs in the industry coming wow. out. So mm. Yeah. And the, and the diversity of that program is amazing because of the, the efforts of the staff to, to make it that way. So it's really a world-class mm. program. Yeah, that's amazing. And actually, we've seen that there has been this focus on diversity across mm -hmm. your institution, and it's even considered formally a strategic priority to cultivate diversity and build an inclusive community for the Knight campus. Can you talk a little bit more about what this actually does look like in practice and, and how it's impacted the campus and, and you know, even you and your lab? Yeah, I mean, you're right. Thank you. Must, you must have seen our strategic plan. That's that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the first thing we did is we we ran a strategic plan, strategic planning process, and we did make it one of the five pillars uh, of the night campus. And so, I do think it's important to you know make that an explicit part of your community. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I think I think what's what's different that we're trying to do is obviously building in some of this this training early on but it's also you know not to just make it talk to make it actually really mm -hmm. ac action uh, in action and so uh, we have a couple programs that i'm really proud of one is that master's internship program that's so diverse over 50 percent of the students mm -hmm. are women or other underrepresented groups in stem in that program and then we also have a postdoc program that's completely based around, of course, connecting with uh, clinical collaborators, but also it's, it's uh, completely based around providing opportunities for underrepresented groups to gain experience and gain confidence, basically, mm -hmm. that this is a good career path. Because one of the things we found was that a lot of people shift away from uh, academics or career paths following a PhD mm -hmm. at that stage uh, because of a lack of confidence. Mm -hmm. That is, and it's, I love that you, it sounds like you've done some needs finding to figure out what those needs are and to directly combat them with, you know, the programmatic elements, you know, the way you're approaching people and recruitment, like all of that. It's just really cool to see the intention and actually carry through there. Well, I think the key is really not, not doing these things because they're expected or, mm -hmm. you know, or even because it's the right thing to do, but because you inherently believe that diversity mm -hmm. is a key part of excellence. And as mm -hmm. we talked about earlier, objectively creates better teams. And so mm -hmm. that's really your motivation. It's not going to be a one-time thing. It's going to be part of who you are. Right. And I, I've always thought about, this is a kind of tangential example, but with grades, like, um, you know, going through grade school, like grades were, shouldn't be the motivation, like learning the material should be, but grades help you reflect on, you know, how well you're doing just in the same way with like your motivation for like believing that diversity actually improves, you know, the overall well-being of everyone involved and the research that you're doing and the impact that you can have. And then the numbers and everything are just a reflection of that, but that's not what you're striving for in the end. So One like of the that. coolest things for me has been, you know, when you're starting a new program like this, it's starting from scratch, right? So the mm -hmm. initial people we recruited came in and, you know, I have one postdoc who's from Colombia, and she's like, this is difficult because there's nobody here for, for me to relate to just because there's, mm. there's literally nobody here yet. And so 
now that we're you know a few years into it and have this really diverse community it's fantastic to see you know the latin dancing and food events out on the patio and you know all <laughs> kinds of stuff where people are are finding communities for them to relate to who are not necessarily from their same group it's just that there's such a diversity of people from around the world they're all enjoying that that environment and in this you know i feel like it's hard to be in these times where it feels both isolating and lonely, but also like we're able to connect with people. We're connecting with you across, you know, other states and a lot of miles between us. But in that way, I think it's been cool to connect to larger parts, even outside, you know, your own university. So we're, I'm, I'd just love to chat a little bit about and hear a little bit about your involvement in like sort of larger initiatives. I know you're a leader in the Wusai Human Performance Alliance. And I'd just like to hear about your involvement with that. Why were you excited about it? And what does success look like to you as being a leader in that program? Maybe you yeah. could um, briefly say what the oh, yeah. Busai Performance what Alliance is, too, <laughs> since maybe not everyone listening yeah. will be familiar. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Yeah, so God, I'm so excited about that. It's it's probably the most exciting thing I've worked on in my entire career. I've worked, you know, I've worked oh. on some really big, you know, NSF and NIH funded projects, but this one really really captures my passion because it's it's really i think a, a huge need really the wusai human performance alliance is designed to discover the fundamental principles associated with peak performance and of course that's relevant to athletes but it's also really relevant to all of us and mm -hmm. It's an area that, um, you know, rightly so, there's tons of funding that goes into and philanthropy that goes into cardiovascular health and brain health and cancer and things like that. Mm -hmm. Relatively less in the musculoskeletal field mm -hmm. because we don't think about it killing people necessarily. But, you know, musculoskeletal problems are the biggest cause of pain and disability, you know, mm -hmm. in the world. And uh, if you look at the funding at the federal level, it's just much, much less in those other areas. So this fills mm -hmm. a, a great need and the scale and the scope of it is just completely unprecedented. So combining the, the expertise of leaders at Oregon and Stanford and Harvard, uh, UCSD, Salk Institute and University of Kansas, and then having the ability to work on this over the next decade, uh, I'm really excited about the progress we're going to be able to make. Yeah, I think we're really excited to see the progress you're going to make too. Hannah and I have been fortunate to be able to sit in on some of the talks. And I think just the diversity of the people involved and then the impact that everyone is making is just really <laughs> unheard of and like just really unimaginable <laughs> to me sometimes. What do you feel like is your role in it um, as everyone's kind of doing their own research, but together like coming together for the same purpose or I guess I'm curious your thoughts on like how all these very different areas can come together and make a bigger impact as a single alliance together. Well, I mean, one thing you probably don't know is that it came together over, over a year. So mm. we started with a, mm. with a whiteboarding wow. session in La Jolla with Clara Wu and she and Tom Scalak, who's her scientific uh, advisor for the Wusai Foundation, uh, invited a group of us down to whiteboard with her on ideas. And mm -hmm. you know, Scott was Scott was in that, and I was in that, and and probably about ten other people. And the amazing thing was uh, this, you know, 
billionaire sat in there with us the entire time. She was, so, she was so engaged and so excited about what we were doing. And that then led to about a year of, of going through ideas and refining them wow. and, and putting together what is now the, the alliance. And so it was really well thought out um, mm-hmm. and really well put together. I, you know, part of the thing that really excites me is Scott, you know, and I have known each other for most of our careers, but we've never had a chance to work together because he's in a slightly mm. different area of mm. biomechanics than I am, right? <laughs> so being able to combine efforts between what he does and what I what I do is, is super exciting. You know, one of the things that we're doing that we're excited about is building in sensors into our mm. devices so that we can mm. actually monitor what's going on, you know, during rehabilitation and mm-hmm. doing actually sort of personalized feedback control during rehab uh, in order to accelerate wow. the, the repair process. That's going to revolutionize <laughs> rehab for, for sure. And, um, and I also think mentally, like whenever, if I'm rehabbing anything, if I have anything to measure, like, and give myself and give feedback to myself, even just mentally, it's like, much more stimulating and much more motivating to stick with the rehab and stick with the process. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The first, the first, well, of course, it won't surprise you. We have a company, startup company around this. Area, so <laughs> we're, we're, uh, it's called Pandaria. Pandaria is developing suture buttons that have sensors in them and are passively powered through Bluetooth. And so you can imagine doing a rotator cuff repair and, and doing the rehab and the physical therapist you know, being able to say, okay, you're, you're doing a little too much. Let's move, move from, you know, 10 pounds down to five pounds or, or you're not doing enough. We're not in the optimal, mm-hmm. you know, window for, for stimulating repair. So that's the hope. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really exciting and, and innovative. And, and I'm really, I can't wait to, to see, you know, where these projects take you. Mm-hmm. And, and especially with you being an entrepreneur too, it's like, I, I feel like you can just, you come from a place of like knowing what the impact will be. And I feel like that's can drive mm-hmm. things forward. And that's really exciting. And it, and it also, I think really made me kind of get this feeling uh, when you said, talked about how Scott, you and Scott have known each other your whole careers, mm-hmm. but haven't had the chance to work together. And I feel like that's something that I think about sometimes when I think about my lab members or people in other labs, people I meet at conferences and it's always like, where are you going to be in your career? Like, we never know what's going to happen and how we can continue to to lift each other up and build things together. And you never know when, when people are, when you're going to have the opportunity, which is really exciting. And we also, um, I guess this leads to another question where we've noticed such a um, diverse range of, of not just people, but animals that you work with in your lab. And... Um, <laughs> Uh, and notice that your lab actually has a fair number of four-legged uh, lab members <laughs> and that appear to be um, dogs that have filled your lab positions, like assistant to the vice president, chief of naps, which is, seems like a role that many people might be fighting for. So that was a lucky dog to fill That's that role. Yeah. <laughs> and adjunct pupper. So we are wondering how these four-legged friends joined your lab if you have open positions like just what is the status on that yeah so (laughs) right (laughs) and why don't you have any cats Uh, well it's a great question they all are currently dogs um but we're not you know we're not opposed to to cats Okay. We're definitely open to diversity. Um, one one recent member asked whether a snake was possible to add to the to the website, which might require renaming it. You know, 
because it wouldn't be fair. Yeah, that would be an overhaul, that. but yeah, <laughs> considering. Yeah, legs legs optional. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, they play a, a critical role, I think, in the Goldberg Lab. But, you know, they're primarily responsible for mental health and wellness, you know, mm-hmm. especially during during COVID. Um, and I have to give credit to my postdoc, uh, Lena Mancipi Castro, for that uh, initiative, taking on the initiative to add our, our four-legged dog member <laughs> part of the website. Um, in terms of positions we're looking to fill, you know, we're a, we're, we're a rapidly growing lab. We have lots of open positions for grad students, <laughs> postdocs, and four-legged members. And I guess the official titles will have to negotiate upon acceptance into the lab. So. <laughs> That seems fair. That seems, it seems like it should be a very, you know, individualized um, basis for, for titles anyway. So. Yeah. I mean, just <laughs> on the theme on. of personalization. Exactly. Exactly. You know, based on experience, skill levels, yes. including tricks and cuteness and all that kind of stuff. Fluffiness. Yeah. Yeah. Cuddliness. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think we're going to, um, I feel like we could talk forever, Bob, with you, but we're nearing the end of our interview and we're going to just ask two more um, questions, our favorite two to close with. Okay. Um, and so the first is, can you tell us about a time where you felt like you failed and what you learned from it? You know, that's a really hard question for me because <laughs> I don't, I honestly don't think about my past experiences in terms of failures. And this mm-hmm. is something I try to mentor my students on and that that does not mean i've made not made mistakes i've made tons (laughs) tons of of mistakes Um, but you know one of my professional mentors was a guy named bob neerham and i don't know if you know that name bob was um he passed away in 2020 but he was a cardiovascular biomechanist and one of the pioneers of the bioengineering field um, and he has a list of 20 or so rules of life that uh, I, I share with anybody who wants them. But one of them was that, you know, there, an unsuccessful experiment is, is not failure. It's just kind of a learning experience. And you learn as much from those and maybe more than from your successes. And so that's mm-hmm. something I've always tried to apply. And, and I, I think part of the problem with thinking about failures too much is it makes people afraid to make decisions and afraid to go down paths. And to mm-hmm. me, that's really the only real failure, um, because like with startup companies, you learn every time you make a mistake. And mm-hmm. so that's that's mm-hmm. why I don't I don't really I guess I don't really. It's a hard question for me to answer that. <laughs> yeah, I feel like failure has such a negative connotation mm-hmm. with the word. Like maybe we just need to like call them research whoopsies or something. <laughs> 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 but we hear that we hear that a lot and from other people and I think that's a really good point to make is that they're less of failures and more of learning experiences and I think thinking yeah. about it in that way really takes the pressure off because I can think of times where I've I've made mistakes and of a varying impacts and <laughs> it's scary at first you know it sometimes you have those heart drop kind of moments but I think being able to talk about them and and having a, a mentor like you who is you know, open to talking about things like that. And, and when mistakes happen, then you can confront them head on and figure out your way, you know, what to do and how to move forward and how to learn from it. And I think having that sort of mindset is really empowering. Yeah, I think, you know, the younger generation now, and I look at this with my my two kids, that, you know, they're much, 
wiser and better informed than we were. There, there was some value in being naive and just trying stuff and, you know, and then adapting as you went along. Uh, I think now, sometimes younger generation overthink things and they think if I make mm-hmm. a mistake, it's going to be the end of the world. And it's mm-hmm. really not. And so that's really, we have a quote on our wall from Phil Knight, which says, you know, don't let anybody call your ideas crazy. Just keep going, you know, and mm-hmm. don't even worry too much about where you're going. Just mm-hmm. don't stop. And I think that's a good philosophy. That's awesome to have that like right on your wall in a physical yep. space and inspiring. Um, well, inspiring come visit. I'll, show, I'll show you the wall. <laughs> I think, be careful. We will be there. We'll be there tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We'd love to come visit, but we also um, love to hear of ways that people can follow you in your work. And we, if you're willing to share those 20 rules of life, we'd also love to share that with the episode. So. Um, Oh, absolutely. I'd be happy to do that. Yeah. In terms of sharing, you know, my students make fun of me for my, I think, personal record of two lifetime tweets. Um, (laughs) I'm not, I'm not not personally very active on Twitter, but the night campus is very active on Twitter and people can follow our work and and those of our other great faculty and students there. Thank you. For our last question, I'm really excited to hear your answer on this, but what are you most excited about for the future of biomechanics? Hmm. Future biomechanics. Well, personally, I, I guess I have to go back to the Wusai Human Performance Alliance. I just think that's such a unique opportunity in biomechanics, uh, just because, you know, biomechanics, again, doesn't tend to necessarily have these large, long-term funding opportunities that, mm-hmm. re- that allow institutions like ours to work together. So I think the chance to make a huge impact there is what I'm probably most excited about. And, you know, biomechanics is absolutely integral to that entire project. Thank you. Maybe if there's any listeners with big pockets, you know, they'll be motivated to start up, (laughs) to start funding some more biomechanics research. (laughs) Absolutely. We we need more. Actually, we we really want to make this a global initiative. And so we're, you know, we're looking to add partners all the time. And one of the things that's, you know, Mm -hmm. one of my jobs is to work with donors and Clara and Joe provided amazing funding for the next 10 years. But what we're trying to do is raise funding so that there's a legacy beyond mm. 10 years and this mm-hmm. alliance can continue in perpetuity. So we're building an endowment to make that happen. Wow. Well, we're so grateful for that because I think you're opening the door for so many opportunities for young biomechanists too mm-hmm. to to see you know the impact of biomechanics and that there's going to be opportunities there to continue work in this field and make sure that we can have the best opportunity to help people with the discoveries that we're making and the research that we're doing. So we're so appreciative for you, uh, to you for doing that and, and all the work that you're doing. Well, I'm appreciative that there's still amazing students like you guys coming into the field and, and, and that we're, you know, there's exciting things to do. There's so much more to do. And, and my focus is really at this stage of my career in, in trying to make people like you all as successful as I can. Well, you're doing a pretty good job of it. And uh, we really appreciate you coming on Boom and talking to us, sharing your perspectives and wisdom with us and and your excitement for biomechanics. It's just really, you know, inspiring to see all of that. So thank you, Bob. Well, thanks for having me. I really had fun. Wow. Thank you so much to Bob Goldberg for taking the time to be on Boom. That was just an incredible interview. And if you enjoyed it, too, and you learned something from the episode, which if you didn't, I'd be impressed if you knew all of that already. 
please make sure (laughs) to let us know and share this episode with someone you think would find value in it. If you did know all of that, we should have you on Boom. So email us too. Yeah, Um, contact us. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But before we wrap up, I think Melissa has some research fails that she's going to share with us today. Well, I just have one research fail. Um, Now we have a whole boom team, which is amazing. So we have eight people who have joined the boom (laughs) team. Like what? Um, Amazing people. We're so, so, so excited. So we have a boom, a fails, research fails channel now in our Slack channel. (laughs) And so we've been sharing fails with each other. So we have a research fail. Oh, I don't say anonymous, um, but from (laughs) one of our boom team members who was cleaning up the files on their hard drive before the break and accidentally deleted a 20 page literature review by mistake. (gasps) I I hate that feeling when something like that happens, Mm -hmm. like, like just like stomach drop feeling. Um, But luckily they'd printed it off to edit a hard copy on the flight their flight and so um they they ended up just retyping the entire thing which honestly just kind of makes me feel like the old days with like a typewriter that i used to hear about like from my mom where she was like i'd make a mistake and then i or like my i don't even know how i don't know when did we're more typewriters your mom i don't know my mom yeah and they make a mistake and then you have to just like retype the whole thing so anyway sometimes it keeps you humble it keeps you humble (laughs) that it does that it does (laughs) Well, thank you so much for listening. And thank you to the International Society of Biomechanics, the Stanford Neuromuscular Biomechanics Laboratory, the Catalyst Project on Motivating Mobility for their support. And thank you as well to Peter Washington for the music. If you'd like to submit a research fail, person to interview, you'd like to be interviewed, or you'd just like to get involved at all, please email us at biomechanicsonourminds at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at biomechanicsoom. And if that's not enough, please also make sure to check out Boom on YouTube as well yeah. so you can see Which, our beautiful how could it? How could it ever be enough? <laughs> we know you want more. It's never enough. Yeah, and on our website, biomechanicsonourminds.com, um, you can also sign up for our newsletter. So um, if you aren't on social media or you also want to take a hiatus from it like uh, many of us do, uh, you can sign up for our newsletter, which is just sending out once a month with a recap of our episode and any boom updates um, or things going on like workshops that Hannah and I are hosting and opportunities to get involved in that or to work with us Um on that, I'm Melissa. And I'm Hannah. Biomechanics Bio off our off minds. Our minds. <laughs> ew, 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 ew.